Although hesitant to adopt a set political label, The Distributist, whose channel includes wide-ranging philosophical discussions and in-depth analysis of civilizational political strategy, nonetheless considers himself part of the Western tradition. In typical rigorous fashion, The Distributist defines this with a clear acronym, C for Christendom, L for Lived Philosophy, E for Ethical, A for Ageless Spiritual Tradition, and R for Renaissance. The latter is of particular note as the distributist is a reactionary in the sense of believing the world is not always progressing forward, but as a true Renaissance man, he seeks to make the present about making the future better. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to hear Uh, hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by a very special guest by listener request, the distributist. He also goes by Dave. So thank you for coming on, Dave. How are you? Hello. Uh, pretty good. Just uh, hanging out on a Sunday after church. I'm really happy to be on this. Set. I'm really happy to be on the show. A little bit tired from traveling, but uh, I'll answer the questions as best I can. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, we have quite a few. Uh, you have quite a channel, and I should also introduce my co-host Hans. Uh, we have one other co-host, hopefully joining us, but we had to get started. Um, but say hello, Hans, real quick, please. Hello, everyone. Hey. All right. So, just the first most basic question, uh, Dave. What is distributism? <laughs> distributism is not the subject of my channel, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, distributism is a Essentially, it's a third-wave philosophy from the early 20th century, developed by two people, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. Chesterton, who is a little bit of a Catholic stereotype, a little bit of an overused meme, I used him as the icon for my channel and blog because I started it in 2012 before it kind of became a cliche. <laughs> and uh, since I just had to stick with the title, I, I used it, and I've talked a little bit about distributism, but for the most part, my channel's topic has been largely about the nature of the culture war and what our the transformations our society is taking going forward into the future, and how perhaps we can we can confront these things with Christianity uh, or or other or other possible solutions that might exist. Yeah. So. Chesterton is very famous. Uh, is the other guy you mentioned, um, <laughs> I'm revealing my ignorance, I apologize. Uh, is he also Catholic? Is this basically a Catholic ideology? Yeah, yeah. It, it, Belloc was a Catholic as well. He was actually most famous for writing a series of children's stories. Although I, most people, you know, before very recently, I think knew uh, G.K. Chesterton for a series of detective novels. Um, but but Belloc was also fond of writing things about civilizational struggle between Christianity and Islam. Uh, he was, uh, sort of strangely enough, he was sort of an anti-jihadist before it was cool. 
<laughs> uh, when, when Islam was at its low point. Uh, but but um, uh, he really Belloc is only known um, in Catholic circles and in and in probably he was also a big Francophile as well. So sometimes he's he's listed there, but he's definitely the lesser known of the two authors. Yeah, yeah, and you're. I think it's the avatar that you use on your YouTube channel. I, I assume that is Chesterton. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I I really want to change it, but because <laughs> again, <laughs> well, uh, total I, cliche. But you know, it, it is it, what it is. It gets to my next question a little bit about yourself too, because it sort of reveals a little bit of your personality and that he's sort of wearing like a cardigan sweater. He's smoking a pipe. He looks very academic. And so you have a uh, PhD in engineering. Yeah. I have a PhD Uh, in in nothing related to the stuff I talk about. (laughs) What type of engineering? Unless you don't want to reveal Um, it. I I do. I do industrial engineering. It's optimization stuff. I, I love that stuff. I have statistics and and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I I got some operations research myself. Oh yeah, uh, really? Oh no, that's way. really cool. So you do um, you you do teaching or do you do any consulting work on the side? Uh, or well, I'm I'm doing both. I'm I'm you know right now I, I'm not to, I can't get too much into the personal details, yeah, but right now I'm I'm kind of split between two countries because my uh, my wife is a foreign national of Canada, and okay. uh, and, and so yeah <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you're kind of we're kind of uh, waiting on a variety of things um, having to do with immigration, but yeah, yeah. I know you know it's internet. You can't. You always wonder, oh, should, how much should I reveal? Is this enough to actually dox me? Although you know, if you looked really hard, I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to to come up with. Well, that, that's enough said. I mean, I'm just really yeah. excited to uh, to talk to you about a lot of things now because. Uh, it's pretty rare in these circles that you come across somebody with a background like you have. And so I just wanted to uh, give a plug for anybody who's got a real hard science and engineering background who also has dissident, politically incorrect thoughts, uh, which don't always go together. Um, and so I guess I'm curious, was it that in sort of your work or your, your you actually, one thing about your channel I like is that you do a lot of sort of personal discovery um, stories. And so I think that's very honest about how the way you approach sort of your personal points of view. Uh, and so you, you kind of explain in a very relatable way how you sort of evolved your own opinions. You know, you, you know, like all of us, you know, read a little Ayn Rand at one point, you know, and then that sort of didn't yeah. seem to match up with sort of how most humans are. You know, we're not all uh, ubermensch and, and whatnot. <laughs> there are flaws in people. And well, so just to give you a little bit of insight in how the channel came about. Um, yeah. You know, and this is going to be another one of these confessionals, right? Uh, the 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 channel came about, uh, well, or really, you know, and I'll probably reveal this over the course of just my channel. I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but the the channel was originally um, I I wrote a blog largely about Catholicism, community organizing, uh, and, and I really would I was I was really more on the mold of of a of a JP two that for for people who are not Catholic JP two is John Paul II who is who is someone who he's sort of like the Ronald Reagan of the Catholic Church not to be denigrating to JP two because he's way cooler but he was a person who during the nineties and the early two thousands pioneered what most Catholics thought was the solution to modernity which was we're going to kind of go up to the boundary make as many accommodations for modernity as possible, but we're going to hold firm on the things that really count like abortion life, the, the, the orthodoxy 
And this is sort of the best of both worlds. We get to be nice and we get to, you know, uh, and, and the media love John Paul II. Um, but at the same time, we also get to say that we are holding true to what the Catholic Church actually wants, what actually believes in the actual mm-hmm. truth behind our faith. And this is the best of both worlds, right? And, and you know, even in Benedict and, and much less so in the pontificate of Francis, um, this was just the way. And it was the way for most Orthodox Catholics. And starting my YouTube career, I, uh, I kind of got in contact with Sargon and, and the alt-right, and I saw sort of a conflict between sort of like the reactionary point of view and the Sargon atheism, uh, stale liberalism thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, the solution is John Paul II. However, I have to say over the course of my career doing YouTube, um, I've kind of, I'm just going to confess to a little bit of a personal transformation. My views have become solidly more reactionary. Uh, I've become much more skeptical of the middle ground, middle way solution. Now, I, I still think that everything John Paul II said was correct, but I think that just the political reality is that there's not going to be any benefit for imagistically yeah. tracking to the center. John Paul II was, we're going to imagistically track towards the center while maintaining true to our beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just not going to work in the modern day. And, and because of that, I think everything that comes from like these national review, the federalist.com, uh, the daily wire type people, it just, it's just, it's just stale. And I, I, you know, three years ago when I started my YouTube channel, you know, and I never was a huge Ben Shapiro fan, but I probably would have told you something very much similar to the stuff he, he said. And, you know, now I'm here, like we need something radically different. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I know exactly what that is, but I think the exploration of what that entails is something that we're all exploring as thinkers on the right. When I when I talk to Catholics, they I actually you know I've never met a Catholic that likes the current Pope. By the way, mm-hmm. um, but it's sort of related to what I was going to say was that they, they tell me that the Church is basically trying to grow its membership at the expense of its principles, and they're taking for granted, however, the people who are there because of the principles, and therefore they're losing those people. Yeah. And then they're replacing them with these people that are, I don't know, liberals or something. I mean, it's basically, it's people like who will never, they'll never keep and they'll never get to come back to church. Yeah. It's like, it's like someone said, like you're, you're pandering to people, you're pandering to people who could not, this comes from another YouTube channel. Uh, but they said you're, you're pandering to people who through their very confession would not be, uh, could not be better liberal anglo liberal episcopalians they they could they, they're they're just to they're they're liberal episcopalians to a t right. but they totally have no interest in following a church that perfectly caters to their theological perspectives and this indicates that if you conform your theological perspectives to their preferences they'll never come back to church because they're not interested in that they're just interested in signaling that they're part of a motion to the left in whatever church they're in yeah, I mean, I, I was gonna, I was gonna mention the Episcopalians. The other one, especially in the United States, would be Presbyterians, which is also another effectively dead church, and it's also but a all, church. All main, all mainline Protestants are effective. Yeah, I mean, it, some, well, some are are more dead than others. There's a few in the United States that are doing all right, I suppose, in terms of membership, but. Well, the, the Protestant sects that are doing well in terms of membership are the distant Orthodox factions of Protestantism, the ones Mormons. that broke from that broke from the consensus of the early 30s. Right. 
I mean, basic, uh, basically, you know, if you want to see uh, a larger scale version of what happened to Episcopalianism and uh, Presbyterianism, you can just look at what's currently going on with Roman Catholicism worldwide. You know, I, I, well, don't, it, I don't know anyone that's, con- that's converting um, because of the current message of mm-hmm. the, pon- the, the, the pontiff. No, it's I, I don't know anyone who's converting because of that. Everyone I know who's converted, no. including myself, uh, has done so because of the messages of people long dead. Nothing having to do yeah. with the current one. Or sometimes John Paul II. But it's funny you mentioned this, right? Because, uh, you know, this is the, the thing is we, we talked about how John Paul II seemed like he had the solution. And Benedict and Francis, and, and I think this fault much more lies with Francis, totally ruined this vision. And they ruined it in two ways. Benedict showed that as soon as John Paul II was, 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 was dead, uh, the media would no longer give puff coverage to the Catholic Church. I think because John Paul II was an anti-communist and, and the media had sort of dropped the ball on some of the, the Polish anti-communist movements in the 80s, they kind of felt guilted into giving him good coverage. But once, you know, once a, a much less photogenic version of John Paul II enters the pontificate, who looks like Emperor Palpatine, suddenly the good media coverage goes away and you start hearing about the Hitler Youth Pope. So that was from one direction. Okay, so you can't do John Paul II again. And then Francis demonstrates that once, once it stops being like, we'll hold true to our principles to now we need to, now our imagistics need to involve publicly seeming like we're undoing doctrine that everyone knows now that that's just a disaster, right? You end up with a wet noodle Pope that looks like he doesn't believe what the church believes, a confused church body of laity, half of which are, are right on the edge of, of, of tracking away from the church and trying to not, not formally schism, but sort of informally schism. And, uh, well, we, we did a yeah. show on uh, Vatican II, and we had on, um, I think he's become like an ordained priest at this point, but he was uh, a member of the SSPX. Ah, uh, uh, yes. But what are your that thoughts on That like an informal schism, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's two anti, there's, there's two, in my, to my knowledge, there's two big anti-Vatican organizations, anti-Vatican II organizations in the church today. Uh, the first one, which I'm much more familiar with because I know a bunch of people from it, is the Fraternal Society of St. Peter, which is a, a Latin mass sort of, we're going to act like Vatican II never happened, mm-hmm. but it is in full communion with the church because it recognizes the authority of the Pope. And then there's the SSPX, which is, I don't know if this is the correct term, but I would call them an in formal schism with the church, meaning that they technically recognize the authority of the Pope, but the actions of their leaders in terms of appointing bishops have fallen in in informal discommunication with the will of the Vatican. And as such, they're they're separated in some kind of way that is, they're in some kind of limbo with the church. And I don't, I feel like I can't quite say exactly what the exact status is because I feel like someone from that is going to hop up and they're going to correct me, but they're in some sort of informal schism, but th- there are many people. And I think it's a growing number of people who don't want to undo Vatican II, but, but understand that imagistically and tactically, it was a huge mistake for the church to, to go about it in the way that it did. And it confused a lot of people. 
Well, maybe they'll have a Vatican III and fix it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, it will have to allow Francis Lee's the pontificate. I'll say that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I see that uh, Nick has joined us. Uh, you want to say hello? Yeah, good morning. I had a uh, landlord issue. <laughs> ah, don't we all? Yes, we all do. You all got to pay the rent at some point. Um, so yeah, this is uh, the distributist. It also goes by the name Dave. To clarify, I, I did not kill my landlord. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so Nick, Nick and I are sort of, uh, I don't know, laps, lapsed Christians or whatever you want to call it. But uh, I, I respect anybody who has a sort of principled approach to anything. But Nick, did you uh, have anything you wanted to ask, uh, Dave? Well, I'm just uh, I'm trying to catch up on... I, I, I was listening for a bit just now, but I, I'm not really... <laughs> I'm not really caught up, so why don't you guys just proceed and all? Yeah. Okay. I, well, I think, yeah, I was, I was talking a little bit about the state of the Catholic Church and how my own views became sort of noticeably more reactionary in the last three years since I started the YouTube channel. So, could you Partly, define that? I've heard that term so many times ever since I've become a thought criminal, basically. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell? What's neo-reactionary, first of all? And then I'm like, okay, what's okay. What's reactionary, and then uh, it's sort of just like a guy who doesn't like like the current culture is my assumption. But why don't yeah, you? Yeah. Okay. So, like all terms on the right, reactionary, you know, like capitalist, like 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 capitalist, like even conservative. The the term reactionary is a derogatory term developed during mm. the French Revolution for people who didn't go along with with what the consensus was by the people who instigated the revolution. Now, right. uh, largely, now everyone will give you a different definition, but largely what I think reactionary means is someone who is skeptical or oppositional to a lot of the ideas or all of the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment. Okay. And uh, this starts with authors like Joseph de Maestra, who I really recommend from people who are interested in this kind of thought, and it proceeds to people like Rene. I mean, it... it, it in the 19th century, being a reactionary essentially meant you were a Catholic. They were the people who were, were first into the whole idea of questioning the Enlightenment and, and, and deciding that it was something that was, uh, was, needed to be confronted, right? Um, but, but in the early 20th century, especially after World War II, a lot of people started questioning these ideas from a secular. And this is sort of where I thought reactionary ideas kind of got a little bit off the rails, but also from the uh, theosophic and, and pagan perspectives. And I'm much more skeptical of that school, but, but largely reactionaries prefer a model of history that is not linear, uh, like the enlightenment people like where the enlightenment likes to believe that everything is upwards sort of a, 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 yeah, basically the Hegelian notion, that everything's like an upward development right. and that we're sort of on this track. Whereas reactionaries are much more fond of the belief or amenable to the belief that history has historical cycles, that things go back and forth. Yeah, I, I now, would say that reactionaries are much more systemic thinkers, whereas even sort of modern capitalists and just most people in general now are sort of dialectical thinkers. Whether they realize it or not, they're sort of working within the idea of a dialectic instead of a general mm -hmm. systems analysis. And a system has feedback and it has regression depression, ingression, has certain forces that you can track over time and sort of begin to understand as part of a larger context. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I, 
in in some sense, I think there. You know, I have to mention here that there were Nick Landon mentioned Smolbug in the early two thousands. Both revived a lot of these ideas, right? And uh, because of that, I think that's where you get neo reaction from. Mm-hmm. And I did. I just did a video on Mencius Smolbug that tried to kind of explain his initial ideas. I listened to that. That that was very good. Uh, oh, and I want to get to neo cameralism later, as it pertains to maybe. Okay. Well, yeah. That's that's gonna. Yeah, we should. We should. But that's that's. I I feel really bashful answering that because I'm not. I'm not so sure how much of an expert I'm going to be on on, on neo cameralist ideas. You know. That's uh, okay. But but um. You yeah, know, yeah, broad broad strokes, I guess, right? Um, at any rate, uh, the I think where was I with the um, the systematized? I think what what re- what reactionary theory has to offer uh, conservatives and I or the right, let's just say the right, because conservatives has all sorts of implications that mm-hmm. we probably don't want to get into. What I think it has to offer the right is a theory of history and a better understanding of the decline we're seeing and why conservatism itself just feels like a futile effort. I think everyone's kind of felt this at this stage that you, you can't continuously play Ben Shapiro conservatism against what the left and what the progressive coalition is currently and is well, well, even more. He can, and that's to his advantage, but not to our, that's the (laughs) main mistake I'd like to make. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, not to cut you off. I, I actually had a quick clarification from, from what your, your definition makes a lot of sense to me because my prior understanding of reactionary was basically somebody who's kind of like authoritarian. And that's not actually what I'm hearing from you. And that didn't make sense to me because it always seemed like, well, the dissident people are very much for free speech mm-hmm. and disagreeing with certain things. And they wouldn't necessarily like a sort of very authoritarian system, even though there's, you know, ostensibly on the right. So am I, am I sort of confusing things or is there authoritarianism somewhere in, in reactionism? Well, I, the, the authoritarian thing comes from the fact that the reason why we have a to authority is the enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. The, the enlightenment was the first one to go like, okay, if you can't justify the authority, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, reactionaries don't believe this. Reactionaries believe that, well, I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds of of, of my understanding of this philosophy, but um, they believe that uh, they believe that really all human structures are authoritarian in nature, and we have this enlightenment misconception that because something has a more authoritarian structure, it necessarily has to be bad. But but really, when you look at most good structures, they have a very distinct authoritarian nature, and we have to be open to these systems working much better than the ones we currently have. Uh, there there is no such thing as will of the people. And this is an enlightenment myth, and I think that would be a constant thing among reactionaries. So I don't think that really, I don't think that as a reactionary you have to necessarily be against democracy. But I think you have to be you have to be skeptical of its magical properties. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, and this kind of gets to the neo-cameralist sort of stuff. It's like if you look at how corporations work, mm. better ones, in my, in my opinion, uh, allow free speech. So they try to get rid of all the sort of bickering and politicking that goes on, which is impossible, but they try at least. But they still have clear decision maker. That person has the authority to tell people mm. what to do. 
Now the person below him can sort of voice a disagreement, but they ultimately have to do what they're told. And I think that's sort of reconciliation of the two things of having independent thoughts that allows for creativity and correction of errors, perhaps, but you ultimately do have somebody who has to decide. And I think that's kind of uh, maybe more of what we all believe, uh, but it's something that I've actually seen in practice that I, I think is important as well, because we talk about all these ideas, but where does it actually work? And so corporations uh, seem to uh, be quite successful these days. And if you're going to run a government, I'm not saying you know do it like a business because there's other priorities, but in terms of just the decision-making hierarchy, that system seems to work better than the garbage that we have today. Well, I mean, this was Mencius Molbug's model for neoliberalism. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that uh, what, what cor- corporations do have democratic elements to them. And that's why I don't want to say that, you know, I think that, I think there were, I think that what, what a reactionary would say is the distinction between, between authoritarian and non-authoritarian is, is more or less meaningless. I, I think that's what the the proper reactionary step it, uh, perspective is, because I, I think that the uh, the democratic elements inside corporations where shareholders vote is an example of a very effective way of of having skin in the game, of having people who have skin in the game accurately have their interests represented. Of course, you're not going to have a board of of ten thousand or or of a thousand shareholders make decisions you have to hire someone for that but at the same time i think the boardroom model is 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 i i think there are certain flaws in keeping ceos in line and you see this in enron mm-hmm. but, but i think that if you have proper controls then then you can use an element of democratic nature to keep people in line and, and get good results for people yeah and the other thing that that we I would saw- add authoritarian is is basically just a a slur by liberals against anyone who challenges them yeah exactly (laughs) i I think i basically it's a thought cliche it means because everyone knows that we have that that like all all systems function on authority you know it's not to i mean not to nerd out it's it's like but but it's sort of like that that episode of star trek where where the borg say like all human cultures are fundamentally authoritarian it's true right like you know even in the liberal utopia that is star trek uh Mm -hmm. they have captain picard and captain picard is the authority and that's you know that's why he he's and everyone looks up to him, right? This is how human societies work, and even in our quote unquote democracy that is the United States, we essentially operate as an authoritarian structure with executives carrying out most of the ideas. Well, it is odd that modern liberalism, in particular, has become um, very absorbed in the obfuscation of authority: who is actually mm-hmm. in charge, who is actually doing anything. Um, I don't know if you've ever read John Kenneth Galbraith's book, The New Industrial State. But he notes, I have not read it, but I've heard people talk about it. But go ahead. He, he notes in the first, right off, you know, within the first few pages, you know, it's written in uh, sort of the late Cold War era, so you have to take that into account. Mm-hmm. But he's uh, talking about, you know, at one point in, in the Gilded Age, we had all these Gilded Age oligarchs. And at the very least, you could say that you knew who they were. You knew mm-hmm. who ran J.P. Morgan. Well, J.P. Morgan ran J.P. Morgan. You know, mm-hmm. you knew who ran Ford. Well, Henry Ford ran Ford. You you knew who the Carnegies were. You knew who the Rockefellers were. You mm-hmm. knew who all of these key industrial conglomerates were ran by. 
you knew their personalities, they're very public people, and they contributed greatly to your everyday life through charities, through various endowments, through all kinds of public works mm-hmm. projects. Um, through, at one point, J.B. Morgan bailed out the federal government on a whim. Yep. So the you know these people were well, well known. Well, it wasn't just a whim. I mean, he, it was his interest to do so. Right, but it, he he basically bank, decided. But, the, the story is that he this is sort of getting in the weeds, but he decided on the day of that he would do it. He had no indication that the problem was that bad prior to. Um, yeah. uh, he got a call from the president. He was asked to help out, and he decided to bail out the federal government for a month. And the story is kind of funny too. They I think he like forced everybody to get onto like a, a cruise ship or something in like Hudson Bay. And he said, "You guys can't get off until you agree to like fix your debt problem or See, something like that." That, that is so. That's sort of that's authoritarianism, you would say, right? And if you no, use absolutely. that as an, if you use that in, as an epithet, and you say that you're an authoritarian, why? Because I executed authority. Because I told mm-hmm. someone you have to do X if you want Y, and if you don't, yeah. you don't get Y. Exactly, Hans. Authoritarianism is Madeleine Albright accusing, you know, Vladimir Putin of being an authoritarian. Right. It, it's it's yeah. sort of this um, it's this obnoxious obfuscation. One, you know, and I'll I'll make this last point. One Let's of the, hide the bacon. One of the particular um, social psychologies, if you want to call it, or sociologies that went into um, fascism, corporatism, and to an extent, maybe later distributed thought accidentally was a lot of the work done in the 1910s and 20s on this idea of functional structuralism. It's very, very obscure sociology, but it had huge effects on a lot of the major thinkers behind, particularly Italian fascism, uh, to a lesser extent, many of the British industrial conglomerates as they grew in the pre- and post-war eras. Um, it had a large effect on Central Europe, uh, surprisingly. Most of Central Europe, people forget, basically went in line with this corporatist ideal. There was, a, there was a strong sense of Catholic corporatism in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, in Romania, under the king. Uh, these ideas were influenced greatly by this sociology, and the, the sociology of functional structuralism is baked into the name. It's this idea that you build a structure, a social structure, and it's, it's rooted in systems theory, effectively a mathematical optimization theory, mm-hmm. That into the structure of something, you ensure that there is functionality. Well, how do you ensure functionality? You ensure functionality through clear hierarchy, hierarchy of components and clear execution of component processes. How do you do that with a human population? Well, you tell people what to do. And you tell people that if you do the wrong thing, something's going to happen to you. And that's very clear. And you can call it, you know, authoritarianism, you can call it brutalism, you can call it dictatorship. If the idea is to actually make something function properly, you know that there's going to be an American liberal somewhere accusing you of being um, some kind of mass murderer incarnate because you thought that people that executed very bad decisions in your society should in turn be shot or just disappeared, probably for the better. Or, or face any kind of consequence whatsoever. Right, right. And so, I mean, I think the the thing is that you know we can exp- we can discuss what is the most effective way to deal with problems, and I think this really has to be done experimentally. We have to sort of learn from history. There's no other better way. I don't think there's a theoretical framework that does this. What we have to learn is that democracy, like 
the, the idea that there's like a will of the people, the will of the people is installed. Like it's installed by media and educational elites. So what, what you're really experiencing when you have, um, when you have uh, an election is you're, you're, you're basically running an information war against the media and the educational institutions and whatever demographic reality exists in your country. Once those three factors are accounted for, any kind of dialectic that goes on is really quite secondary. Uh, you know, it, it's not, I can't, if I live in Seattle, which I used to, I can't argue Seattle into becoming libertarian, no matter how good of an orator I am. Uh, mm -hmm. there's just a certain reality of the institutions that's going to keep it the way it's going to be. Uh, now, do you think that's an inevitability of democracy or it's just the fact that we live in that system and it's called democracy, even though it's not. Uh, but in, in the absence of all that sort of uh, media sort of bias and influence and educational propaganda that we all agree is true in our current society, uh, would you have a more sort of free independent uh democracy in, or, or would that even be better i mean it, and is, have we ever even seen that probably not but um i mean it's an inevitability the myth of democracy for sure mm -hmm. i mean well, the idea one that, of the let, me, let me jump in really quick i mean we should probably step back and try and understand what exactly modern democracy is versus what previous forms of democracy were. I think Adrian Vermeule, who I know we've all probably had disagreements with, has written at least one article where he's talked about this sort of weird historical development of what we now think of as democracy or liberal democracy. And around the 19th century in England, there was a um, begrudging alliance between sort of Lockean liberals and sort of business-friendly liberals, as you would call them, and sort of the uh, more Jacobin-style Democrats within England. Um, they didn't necessarily like each other, these two political factions, and in fact, um, many in the sort of liberal wing or the, sort of the Whiggists thought it was a bad idea after doing it, that they aligned themselves with the sort of populist um, mass manipulation campaign. Uh, bad idea morally, bad idea uh, sustainably, bad idea economically. Uh, what we now think of as democracy is really this uh, notion that, well, not only does everyone get to vote, but you see, the public isn't that smart. But we can't tell them they're not that smart because the public is special and everyone in the public mm. is special. And they all it's bring magic. Some, it's they all bring something amazing to the table. You're all amazing. You're all loved. You see this very bizarre inversion of um, what was common in small, rural English and American communities brought to the national stage in sort of these pluralistic, um, multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious empires. Even England, mm. even you know, Great Britain is that way. You have so many differences between the north of Scotland and the south of England that to govern them in the same way as a mass democracy uh, causes a litany of problems as it does in, in Britain today. And it causes an unbelievable number of dysfunction or dysfunctions within America. So let, let's take that example, Hans, and maybe uh, Dave can sort of jump in here. How would a distributist 
system work? It, my understanding is that there would be sort of local authority devolution, but there's still an overall hierarchy, something like that, with, as opposed to the democracy, which is kind of a sham anyway. But well, I don't, I don't think distributism is a political. System. I think it's a. I think it is. It's okay. like an, it's 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 after you have political control, how you want to divide up resources and administer. So it's an economic power. thing, not not a. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, more, I hate to say it's like economy. Yeah, I don't know if it can really answer the question of, of how. I mean, I guess what 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 Zika Tetrington would probably say, well, not to put words in someone someone's mouth who's been dead for years, but I, I think he would say something to the fact that you know it, it's you can't talk about democracy outside of of of, of a localized concept of it. And I think that's that's kind of important to understand. So what would it be kind of? Uh, I know we're not fans of conservatives here, but the typical conservative solution in the United States, at least, is that you would have limited central government and sort of more uh, power to the local governments. Would that be something that Chesterton would? Well, I, I, that would sure, but I don't think you're going to get that. On. I think the mistake of the conservative is not the desire to yeah. see yeah, local yeah. government. Right. It's the assumption that the system that we have currently post-Civil yes. War is – because we've essentially said that the, the government is the – the federal government is the ultimate authority uh, of, yeah. of everything. And, and, and so like – so what, what discussion is there to be had? Yeah, the, the, there's a fundamental flaw that they never seem to recognize. You know, and these are people that constantly talk about the founding documents and the founding ideology – the federal government is the final decider of jurisprudence in this country. Yeah. Common law is settled at the federal level. Most actions can be at the state or local level can be overruled and is constitutional by the executive, by writ of Congress, by writ of the Senate. So it's very easy for the federal government, as baked into the Constitution, as baked into the ideology of many of the founding fathers, to overrule federalism. Now, this is a product of what they thought, and they didn't. It was not malicious on their end. If you ever read um, Farran's book, The Framing of the Constitution, it talks about this. They, this is something that they debated very genuinely. You know, this Articles of Confederation business is not working. Uh, we have no idea what mm. we're doing any given day. Um, there's no guarantee. That if the British land in New Jersey tomorrow, that South Carolina will feel any legal obligation to assist in what's going on. Uh, we, have, we have no idea how to manage this, and this has left us worse off. So well, how, I mean, and how do we set up a system that functions in their mind? And at the time, you have to keep in mind the idea of scale, that it was a very scaled back country. There weren't a lot of people, and most of the people here were very identical to each other. So you could have this trust-based system of, well, well, you know, we, we can maybe rest this final jurisprudential authority in this central figure, but, but the people here would never really impart on one another something untoward. That's what they would probably tell you. So I, I guess the question is, and I think you know, the whole concept of democracy in this country only made sense if it was local. The question really is, what does it even mean to to lose an election where there's three hundred, you know, there's three hundred million people voting in it? I mean, I don't even know what that means at a very basic level. 
Okay, what does so it mean to get the- 40? You know, I mean, it, it, yeah. it, there's not some kind of like magical will of the people that, uh, that, that, that governs this. It, it's just, it's just, I, I don't know what it means, literally. So you're not necessarily against central authority. It's just having, in a large scale system, having a democratically sort of influenced central power. It would be more like you can have democracy at a very local level. And it's almost like how China runs, to be honest with you, because they have sort of very extremely local uh, elections these days, believe it or not. Uh, From last I read, you know, maybe five years ago, they were starting to do that. But the Communist Party of China runs everything, basically. And then they, they select the people to go up the ranks basically on performance quotas of economic growth. Mm-hmm. Primarily. Um, now, I don't know if America would be better if that was the way we did it, but uh, that's another model that exists. You know, China basically follows, I think, what a lot of uh, medieval states and to an extent um, some of the modern era Catholic, I guess you could call them authoritarian states, followed, which is you know a conciliatory model. It's not so much should we give you a choice to vote but it's should we listen to your input and the answer is yes we'll listen to your input and we'll take it seriously so in you know uh, a good example is in shanghai there are uh, several questionnaires sent out pretty much everyone how is garbage collection um how is civil service how uh, how are you finding certain services that you're entitled to working do they not work wow. for you? Why don't they work for you? Detailed questionnaires with follow-up questions if needed. You know, there is a very consultative approach to how do we run this local area? How do we run this economic zone? How do we import that uh, basic feedback into the uh, national structure? And how do we get it through the Politburo back down here? There's a lot of real thought-out processes, and it worked the same in medieval states. In medieval states, was not as complex, but the same function was there. And these same Catholic medieval states basically said to many of their peasants, look, there are, there are rudimentary contracts in place. There are agreements in place between you and the feudal lords at all levels and us, the church. And we are here to ensure that there is fair and equal treatment between both. If you rebel unjustly against your Lord, we will give your Lord authority to kill you or enslave you, whatever. But likewise, your Lord cannot brutalize you, and the nearby prince or us will be authorized to step in and do something if he does. There was this sort of general agreement about what was best for people, what could benefit people, how people could improve their lives. Now, you know, the idea that you improve it Anyone's there to actually improve your life is sort of alien to the American conscience. It's alien to the Democratic Party mm-hmm. because the Democratic Party is essentially interested in giving you things but not improving your life, giving you housing, giving you Social Security benefits, giving you student debt relief. Does any of that improve my life? Does any of that make me healthier? Do I get to raise a family? No. Yeah, the, the, the Democratic Party doesn't even care if your dog is undercooked. No. I mean, no, nobody. The thing is that nobody cares. I think that's probably what one of the key elements of distributism is that someone is actually put in charge to care. And as revolutionary as that doesn't seem to sound, uh, it actually was. Even at the time when Belloc started coming up with this idea, I think around like 
1912, 1915. It's sort of right in that pre-World War One era, right at the beginning of the war. He was formulating this thesis, uh, this economic thesis, and it was basically, look, this industrial capitalism in England is going to ruin the country. It's going to ruin the people here. It's, they're all going to die of disease, and they're all going to be without property. And a few very powerful, very greedy, very impotent people in London are going to own everything. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem mm. normal. That seems very uh, stupid long term. This is how we all die out. So in his mm -hmm. mind, the idea was to create, I guess you could say central authorities, the same way the Chinese do, the same way medieval states did, to ensure that things actually work, that you actually are delivered the services that you request in the way that you The Republican them. Party also doesn't care if your dog is undercooked. No, no, yeah, one there, no, no one in the Republican Party cares about you, by the way. I want everyone to realize that. I think that the China, I'm not a fan of China, I think, but they will demonstrate in the next 20 years the meaninglessness of democracy when they use social media to engineer the opinions and their own population that they need to essentially secure their leadership through popular mandate. Once that occurs and people see the feedback loop, people will understand that democracy qua democracy is a ridiculous concept. If well, you when you say people will understand, I mean... Okay, uh, people people who are reasonably aware of the world. Mm -hmm. okay. If they do not already understand that, they will understand that after that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, like, there's always this classic example of Switzerland. The reality is that Switzerland... Switzerland's not actually a place where you can get away with whatever you want, by the way. The laws in Switzerland are much more stringent in certain regards on social issues than in America. Uh, in particular, I like their immigration laws. Well, it's not, not you're, just you're that. You're not even allowed to apply to be a citizen unless you've lived there for 11 years or something. Uh, it, it is the strictest I've ever seen. It, it's, of it's, not only a, it's not only a strict place, but it's also such a decentralized place and such a scaled-back place. There's nothing really comparative between anything you could ever do in America unless you did it. You rewrote everything about America. And then try your best to model it in the same way the Swiss have. There's nothing that can really be done, in my mind, that would bring America into this sort of idea of ideal democracy. You know, we can have it at the local level, we can do we can try this, we can try that. I mean I guess experimentation is good. You know, Belloc would probably mm -hmm. Belloc and, and Chesterton would probably say better than doing nothing or better than sort of doing nothing and, uh, and allowing yourself to be destroyed or destroy mm -hmm. yourself in the process. But in the same vein, you know, I don't really think that there's any way out of it. The only Well, I, I, will, I will point out here that this is not a practical concern in the modern day. No. Uh, the, concern, the right right now just has to figure out how it's going to survive the next 40 years. They, they have to figure out how to organize and lobby people for their existence. And if they can, if they can't figure that out, they're in serious shit. No, I think you're right, and <clears throat> this brings me to another question I had for you because I, I, I think you did a great job in a service to a lot of people on the right and perhaps the left, probably not as much. You interviewed uh, the Bronx blogger. I don't think he's going to talk to me because I asked him something about white and they're defensive. He he was very cordial at the start of that call, and when 
you were bringing up questions about why can't ethnic groups just live amongst themselves? Why do they have to be forced to be multicultural? He got a little defensive because he's mixed race, yeah. bottom line. And that's okay. I mean, at least he's honest about it. But um, the main question you were trying to get at, from what I understood, was that is there any, and he's an anarcho-communist for those who haven't mm. heard, the sh- or heard the interview. I'd highly recommend it, though. It's, it's very interesting. And uh, Dave, by the way, you have incredible patience. Uh, you were very, very... Uh, diplomatic in that interview so um but going through that and i wouldn't probably have the patience to do it but i appreciate dave did but going through that he he was basically asking is there anything in common at least on the fringes of the right and the left that we can sort of agree on so that we can basically address the main problem of the uniparty controlling everything in the united states and can we actually change the system at all or are we basically doomed to be on the fringes for the rest of our miserable existences? And I don't really know if he was amenable to that. He didn't really seem like he was. But in your opinion, other than himself, were there other sort of people you, you could think that there could be allies the sort of, of the right that are not necessarily traditionally from the right to help the right a little bit? Well, I, this, is, this, is, this is the practical political concession, uh, concept of our age. Is that it, as a person on the right, it is so obvious that the left has got critical contradictions that are going to cause it to implode sooner or later. The question is, how will it implode and who's going to be the first to break off? I, I don't think there's a debate over it will because there are so many contradictions just in the whole transgender thing itself. There's so many contradictions <laughs> that, that, like, you know, we know that this can't. We know that this can't go on forever, right? Well, we know this can't go on forever, and so the yeah, question I mean, is, what watch is going one to of these like track meets where like one of these uh, so-called women gets up there and just clocks yeah. the, uh, all the other actual I mean, women, and it's yeah, like yeah, that's like yeah, that funny you know? though, right? Yeah. Oh, it's that's hilarious. funny though, right? It's hilarious, <clears throat> and you know, no, like everyone knows that like it's wrong, but none of the progressives can say why, right? We have to play this game, dance around like this. Oh, it's not going to happen. It's just this one. Like every time it's like it's a one. And you know, they haven't even. So we all know that this is going to work in the long term. Everyone knows that. I bet if you ask progressives deep down where they won't talk to conservatives, they know it. The question is, who's going to break off first? And, you know, I'm not so sure I know exactly who it's going to be. Uh, I think some people like Angela Nagel, they, sh- they show the signs of understanding the problem. But I don't know, the, the left has it so ingrained that they cannot cooperate with the distant right and with sort of nativist factions that it, it's, it's not clear whether they won't prefer their own deaths to, to, to holding out on that. Well, there's one group that I think we can all agree we have want nothing to do with, and that is the white liberal. Yeah, um, oh yeah. The, oh. the the white sh- the white what people call shit libs. Like yeah. just, you know, in, in, unless they actually make an effort to uh to reform, like there's just no reason that you'll need any action with them because it, it, their their existence as a political entity is simply to signal against you. They're, they're kind they of have, useless people if you think about it because even the well, people no, in their, no, their, their money is not useless. And they have money. Yeah, but 
uh, is it really theirs and do they create it? I mean, here's the thing. It's like the people in the coalition don't even respect them, in my opinion. <clears throat> I'm sorry. What did you say? I, I mean, so I, I did a study, you know, in, you know, we're, we're kind of coming up on time in probably 10 or 15 minutes, but I did a study yeah. about just people on YouTube and YouTube is a pretty right wing place. All everything's said and done. Yeah, it is. And, it uh, was. <laughs> but, but you'd be surprised because I did an analysis before the whole Sargon fiasco with Patreon mm-hmm. about who was making the money. And I determined that like, you know, even if you adjust for views, if you're a left wing blogger with a viewer, you get paid like f- four, four to five times the amount. Of right, money right. for your channel so like you know if like you know sean and jen or, or three arrows who, who in my opinion does just shit shit content right uh they, they basically just like they just scoff at people that's all they ever do um they get paid good money to do that and, and i'm not even gonna go into contraplay who who i think does i mean I, I mean that person they could pay for a sex change every year with the money they make on the like they could reverse their sex every year with the money they make on on YouTube, it's insane. And right wingers, with with a few notable exceptions, don't. And uh, you know, we have to have day jobs, and of course, being a right winger in any explicit sense is very very risky to your financial mm-hmm. well being, as the left wants it to be. And um, so the question's just, you know, what what ultimately is going to come of this? Uh, the money differential is very; it's a very real thing. So they're basically, I, you're right in, in practice. I, I guess what I was sort of thinking was that the, the sort of white liberal is sort of like the guy who's, um, he's in the prison camp and he's collaborating with the guards. <laughs> and it's like he's getting the goodies because he's a collaborator at the expense of his own friggin' people. But how long is that going to last? And that's kind of where I'm sort of hoping this eventually gets because these people, uh, traitors, whatever you, word you want to use, it's like they're 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 playing the easiest strategy. They're not. Yeah, I know. But but the thing is, that it won't last forever. At least if we don't go into some kind of post scarcity economy. If we go into a post scarcity economy, all bets are off. Yeah, but if but if things if things are anything like ordinary human existence has been since we evolved, then right. and there actually is scarcity, and therefore there actually is politics as usual. Uh, the 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 white the white middle of the road liberal is the best game to play right now, but he's going to be effed once things change at all. Well, that's because, kind of what because, we're because, the, because the progressives hate him too. The progressives hate like the white like. Yeah. Because nobody hates a simpering sycophant, right? Yeah. And, and so, and so, eventually, they like if you go to like if if you were in a progressive area, and, and you go to like Black Lives Matter meetings or, or any other thing, they're they're like you know of course there's like white white women or or, or yeah you know the progressive women there of, of any race, and they're they're accommodating obviously because um because. Uh, you know uh, who doesn't want young women on your team, right? Uh, mm. and, but but the but the, the people who are the treated with the most contempt are like the, the the toadying little like white men who just like they just want to help guys. They just want to help, and, and and everybody dislikes them. And you know eventually they're going to get the message that the, that that this is not you know this the behavior is not rewarded either on the left and the right. I don't know what that's going to mean. Uh, 
but but it's it, it seems like it's it's going to mean something eventually, and, and eventually this message will be internalized at some level. Yeah, I don't I don't know how sort of fantastical your sort of uh, future scenario projections get, and I couldn't give you a number on any of this, but mm-hmm. one where I sort of see the rural side of America winning out is is basically a a just a very scarce economy as opposed to the post-scarcity economy because these people have skills all right they know how to build a house they, they can uh, they can fix things the people in the the liberal coastal cities they sit at their desk all day on social media or whatever the hell they do for money and fundamentally they're so disconnected from the physical world that i think they're they're real screwed now other people disagree with this sort of kind of like uh, Kurt Schlichter sort of red state, blue state stuff. Um, and it's very complicated, obviously. And the cities are incredibly useful resources in terms of like just logistics. Like They the make money. Ports, they also are able to make alliances with capital that's international right now. Yes, exactly. I mean, I was, that's, that's the problem. But People are like, oh, we have more guns. But actually, Blue America has yeah. more guns because they've got ports. And so they can manufacture whatever weapons they want in China and then they can just ship them over there on the huge cargo ships. Yeah, the, the military is the sort of big wild card because a lot of people sort of see it as kind of like, well, they're just there for money, but there's a huge contingent in it that is sort of very patriotic and sort of the heritage American sense. Um, and a lot of them see a lot of the corruption because they're sort of right on the front lines of it in Afghanistan or wherever. And they hate the government just as much as mm. you know regular people do and so would they sort of jump in to, you know round up you know the sort of dissident people i don't know i don't know so that, that's another one that i think about sometimes uh some people you know want to get them on our sides people want nothing to do with them but um it's a real open question how how this gets settled but there's a big divide i think growing in this country and it's it's not clear exactly. It's not going to be like this first civil war because. Well, I mean, the, the, the question one. happens around what happens to the progressive coalition when it breaks. What happens now, what do you, when. What are the components, the primary components of, of that coalition in your mind? I mean, I can see the women, the sort of. I mean, uh, I mean there, are, there are the white progressives, urban yeah. progressives that provide the money. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, young white women are merely just a subset of that demographic, right? Uh, and then there are various different immigrant groups and then there are African Americans. And, uh, I mean, I, I see the crack coming between the moneyed interest and the, the, well, that, that's, interest. that's mainly Jewish from what I, what I see in numbers. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's not just that there are a lot of, there are a lot of, and, and you know, the behavior of, of Jewish and Gentile people in that group are more or less the exact same. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not going to comment on the composition of of white urban money, but uh, but but it, the the phenomenon of their political behavior is consistent across groups. Uh, and uh, and the question is, what happens when they get spooked? Not like a little spooked, but really spooked, right? Because they have been a little spooked right now. But what happens when they get really spooked? Because it's 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 going to get scarier for. Them. And uh, the question is just how much more scary does it need to be before they think maybe I shouldn't write that check. And once the checks stop coming, the incentive for the more radical groups on the ground is to get more radical. I I mean, uh, just, just sort of first pass analysis. I just sort of see the sort of 
ethnic dividing lines being the first to crack. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's actually how it's going to break. Um, but I can't imagine the sort of blacks joining up with sort of dissident right. No. Hoteps notwithstanding. I can't see the Hispanics doing that either. But I can possibly see white women basically realizing they're white too. Uh, and I can see some Jews uh, getting fed up with the progressive side mm-hmm. of their, their sort of religion. And so they might go over to the red state a little bit. But well, other than that, I don't know. I don't see it. I mean, if, you can, if you can promise people safety from craziness that is the left, then you've got a damn good chance of getting them on your side. All I need is an assurance that they're not going to be scapegoated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that opens up the possibility of an alliance. And right now it's all about what is the counter-progressive alliance going to look like in this country? And, and that's, that's sort of the question we're all struggling with, because I don't think anyone has an answer to that question. What do you think about the... Um... This is kind of a left field question, but while you're on here, because it's sort of yeah, no a, problem. a distributist thing, and you're um, you're sort of the spiritual, religious bent. What do you think of the Amish and the Mormons? These are my two pet projects I like to study. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're good models. the The question with the Mormons and the Mormons and conservative Catholics, you know, despite being sort of and I, Mormons are kind of a weird, you know. They're kind of like a duckbill platypus form of Christianity. They're definitely where, weird, but they get results. That's yeah, yeah, they, they like, but, but the thing is, is the problem with the Mormons is that their leadership is going to th- go through the same corrupting process as everyone yeah. else. Oh, yeah. So the question is, can they resist that? And that's also the question for my own Catholic Church, right? Yep. yep. Uh, Mormons are like, uh, sorry, not, not the Mormons. I was the the Amish are an example of how. You, you do get results by simply just deciding that you're going to get off the modernity ride writ large. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point, humanity is going to have to get off the, the technological train where it's just like, oh, hey, we invented it and it makes money. So let's do it. Like, we're either going to have to say, but, like, but can you opt out te- of that and actually survive while everybody else is using technology? It's sort of like, you know, you're- I, I think I think you can use technology in certain ways that yeah. will be not destructive for the human person that will s- still make you competitive. Uh, I think I think yeah. it's there has to be discussion on the way the technology is used such that survival is a constraint. But at the same time, it's not just like. Oh, hey, like, you know, it's the difference between saying like, oh, hey, we invented morphine. Let's use it to kill pain. Or, hey, we invented morphine. Let's sell it as a recreational drug at every corner store because it makes money. Right. And this is there's there's a difference between those two inventions. Right. And selling morphine at every corner store does not make you more competitive. Uh, so like, what, like, what is the sort of mixed model that you would see is because, you know, you're sort of an IE guy, mm-hmm. sort of optimal point on that sort of complex multidimensional surface, where do you see the mixed governance model working the best in our current world and maybe even in the past, whereby you do have sort of a, you know, you're not going to get conquered like the Amish would because you have a somewhat technological military, but at the same time, you're not like this hyper-capitalist crap that we live in. You're not letting your people basically fall into drug addiction because they can't find a job. And so you're, you're mean, employing you people. You want to hear my biggest crackpot theory? Like, yeah. and I have to go in like five minutes. Perfect. My biggest desired crackpot theory 
is that we're essentially going to have like a bunch, like a bunch of rural communities that operate in dif- different stages of technological stasis. And, and then you know, like like the Amish, and then new young people will come into the cities, and then people will be filtered back from the cities into rural communities when they want to. They they work for a few years, and, and you know, then they <laughs> then when they want to retire at at, at childbearing age, like right. they go back and have their families, and and then the cycle continues. So that yeah. that, that 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 the cities essentially are the economic point. Uh, and and but but the cities know that they operate as part of a cycle with the rural areas, mm. and I think Israel I, I, Israel is trying to do that, right? The, the question is that there has to be there has to be an understanding that that the nutsos in in the backwater aren't going to come into the cities and smash everything up. That that you need to have a, a modern economy, and in the meantime, you know the cities aren't going to just get so decadent or 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 degenerate that they're that they destroy the ability of 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 the rural portions to to keep humanity going that's my crackpot theory for how this could be done and i think if you look at russia and israel and people who are trying who aren't don't have their heads up their asses and actually want to survive that's exactly what israel is that's how they imagine their mall going forward Some people want us to believe.